0: Hey there, friend, family, foe, lurker alike. This is your host, Daniel Minnick, along with my sweet and beautiful wife and co-host, Chelsea, here with me to continue our series talking about revivals. And we are going to do part two of the First Great Awakening, so the first revivals in the Colonies And before we get into that, we just want to bring a little bit of recent news from our home state of Colorado, talking about abortion battles. And so, sweetheart, you want to talk about that for a little bit?
1: Sure. So this last week was a little bit busy in our Colorado state house where there were three bills introduced. Unfortunately, all three of those bills were dismissed as far as advocating anything that would be beneficial for the pro-life movement. So one of the bills that was introduced was the bill entitled Concerning Abolishing Abortion in Colorado. This is House Bill 23-1119. And this bill was basically defining what the unborn is and that the unborn is a person and a person is considered to be human from the moment of fertilization until natural death and that under different laws, these persons, these humans are to be protected. And if they're harmed, and intentionally harmed specifically, as this bill states, that there should be consequences for that. Just like we have murder of any other person, then there's a crime committed and then punishment follows so they're trying to just say that any homicide like a victim of homicide is a human being that was alive at the time of the act and they're clarifying that this includes an unborn child at every stage of development from fertilization until birth and yes so that one was shot down Hmm. and so
0: is that basically the end abortion now type of law there uh, yeah. Yes. So had like Jeff Durbin support and stuff like that.
1: Yeah. And I know similar bills like this one have been introduced in other states. Oh, yeah.
0: Georgia, Louisiana, maybe. I'm trying yeah. to remember.
1: <laughs> there were, I think when I was reading an the article, there were up to 15 different states that were trying to get this type of bill introduced, which would be pretty amazing. So another bill that was introduced was one entitled Concerning the Administration of a Painkiller to an Unborn Child Prior to an Abortion. This was House Bill 23-1097.
0: This one is like barely pro-life. Basically, it's the idea of like, if you're going to abort, at least do it kind of in a merciful fashion, right? Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So, this one's really short, so I'll just read it to you very quick. So, it says, The bill requires a health care provider who performs an abortion of an unborn child who is 20 weeks gestational age or more to administer a painkiller for the child prior to the abortion. The bill makes exceptions to this requirement in specific circumstances. So, hmm. this isn't even... If you would argue like, oh, what if it's an emergency, then do the doctors have to stop and try and quickly under stress administer pain medication to the baby? Well, this bill even gives provision for that circumstance. So it's basically just saying, okay, if there's time and there's adequate staffing, it's a doctor who doesn't think this will increase the risk to the mom by administering the pain medication then they should be required to administer pain medication to a baby who's 20 weeks or further along. And this was shot down. Yeah. And mm-hmm. their main reason for shooting it down too was saying that this was an anti-abortion <laughs>
0: it's not introducing any limitation on abortion it's basically like okay even pro-abortion people will try to say well oh yeah the fetus doesn't feel pain until whatever week so it's like okay well then at least mercy kill you know and they can, even that's not acceptable yeah
1: Yeah, and like you said, that bill didn't even have anything to do with whether they can have an abortion or not, so it's not infringing on the abortion rights. Mm. It's just actually saying, okay, yeah, let's give them pain medication. I mean, we give people pain medications, like local anesthetic, if we do any type of incision on them, let alone ripping arms and legs Mm -hmm. off. Like, (laughs) it's just, it's crazy. Okay, so the third bill... Which this one is definitely one of my, I don't even know how to describe it.
0: Areas of interest? I don't
1: know. Just like my heart for (laughs) this whole movement. And so it was just disheartening to read what this bill is introducing. But, I mean, the bill is good, but the response to this bill So this bill is entitled Concerning Creation of the Abortion Pill Reversal Information Act. This is House Bill 17-1086. And basically this bill, it's a little bit more lengthy, so I'll just summarize it, but it's saying that an abortion provider needs to give a woman who's seeking the abortion pill information. So he is giving her informed consent about what she's going to do. And part of that informed consent and information is that there is also the option of reversing the abortion pill if she decides that she doesn't want to go through with it, or also that she does not need to follow through in taking the abortion pill either. And as a medical provider, that is ingrained in us from the very start of medical school is that you have to give informed consent. You have to explain the risks, the benefits, like what all is going on before they agree to do something, to take a medication, to have a procedure done, any intervention like that. We have to give them that information. But all of a sudden when it comes to the abortion pill or abortion procedures or um, birth control, different hot topics like this, all of a sudden we're not supposed to give them informed consent or give them all the information that they need to make that decision. And it's just so frustrating because that's not right. That's not how we Mm. care for people by withholding information that could be beneficial or helpful. (laughs) Yeah. So the bill yes, says that they have to give um, the informed consent that the Department of Public Health needs to have a statement on its website about the abortion pill reversal and how that's an option as well and that the doctor has to allow 24 hours from the the time that information is given until the lady is prescribed the abortion pill so that way she has time to feel like she is making that informed decision because when you rush someone into the paperwork and all the information and making sure they understand and then hurry and sign the papers and take the pill you don't know if they fully understood everything you just explained to them so having that 24 hours helps them be able to absorb that information and feel like they are making that informed decision. So, of course, that one was shot down and the main reason this was shot down was because Representative Lorena Garcia from Westminster said that this bill should not be approved because the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists agree that this is not based on science, the abortion pill reversal, and it does not meet clinical standards. Garcia argued that there needs to be facts presented in that the abortion pill reversal does not have good research. It doesn't have good data behind it to present as a fact to even be a part of the informed consent. And she further explains that informing people of practices in medicine that are unproven and dangerous is malpractice. It's coercion, it's dangerous, and simply put, it's a farce. That was a direct quote from her. And basically, she was accusing this bill of gaslighting and lying to people to push an agenda.
0: (laughs) Sounds like gaslighting to me. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it sounds like the gaslighting claim about the abortion pill reversal is itself gaslighting, because we know there's the evidence that there's about 5,000 babies who've been born and saved from the abortion pill through the reversal, which... It's basically giving the body progesterone to fight against the mifepristone that tries to block progesterone from uh, getting to the baby. And so it's like, hey, here's more progesterone to help the pregnancy and prevent the miscarriage that's being forced on the baby. And so there's definitely, it's definitely not what they claim. and
1: Yeah. So as we head into the topic <laughs> of the Great Awakening, this is just a good reminder of, There is such a battle going on between life and death and that we need a revival in our hearts, like in our church, in our community. We need to see people who are willing to stand up and fight for life and stand up and preach truth and share the gospel and not in like a critical way. And I think that's kind of the fun thing about learning the people behind The Great Awakening is that yeah. they did this because they loved people and they cared about people. And they didn't want to see these people spend eternity apart from God. Yeah. I think you got some great information about our first man we're going to talk about here.
0: Yeah. So as I've been reading about the revival preachers and the Great Awakening and kind of almost like feeling like I'm getting to know them, it's like, yeah, I could definitely see their heart. I can almost picture their voice and their inflections and stuff as I've been reading about them. But if you listen to the last episode, if you haven't, recommend that you do so you get the background because we gave some of why a revival was necessary in the early colonies about 100 years after the first churches were founded there and covenanted together. So we saw that what was as the original pilgrims started having children and those children starting having children and the structures of the congregational churches there, the covenants that they had and their understanding of covenant theology resulted in questions about how do we regard the children of regenerate people, people that we thought were regenerate and they're children who grow up, but they never, you know, make a profession of faith or not evaluate as regenerate, and they had infant baptism there, and so you baptize the children of covenant members, but then what about children who grow up and then they have children, and we don't know if these second-generation children are covenant members. Can you rightly baptize their children? <laughs> and so eventually in 1662... A pastor, Richard Mather, introduced among some congregational churches what became known as the halfway covenant that allowed children of unregenerate children to be baptized, but they couldn't partake of the Lord's Supper, and they would be regarded as halfway members of churches. Eventually, you're going to have, what about their children? And so, on down the line there, And now we get to a particular preacher by the name of Solomon Stoddard. So kind of following in the footsteps of Richard Mather, who was kind of expanding church membership. We end up with Solomon Stoddard, who became pastor of a Congregationalist church in Northampton, Massachusetts. So, Massachusetts here and the Congregationalist churches is kind of the epicenter of the revivals that we talk about. Pastor Solomon Stoddard fully embraced the halfway covenant because he saw the dead religion... And he was looking for a solution, and he saw that the halfway covenant would kind of bring more people into the church to recognize, okay, we can have them in the church, we can regard some people as somewhat members so we can continue to grow the church and not have people as church attendance And officially recognized church membership was dwindling. This was considered a solution by some Congregationalist churches, Now, although this halfway covenant would prove to be kind of detrimental to the churches, it doesn't mean that the advocates of the halfway covenant themselves were not good people. (laughs) So Solomon Stoddard himself was kind of a proto-revivalist here. He was definitely not a liberal and... Like some of the Great Awakening people, he would preach on hell. He would preach on the need for regeneration. He would preach for people to wake up from their slumber. He was a fire and brimstone preacher. He preached against getting drunk and various vices. But Solomon Stoddard would take the halfway covenant and expand it even more to the point where basically church membership was just open to anyone like you can be recognized as a member of the church if you're just a normal person in the community if you're not committing crimes and stuff you just demonstrate hey he looks like a nice guy so he can be a member and stoddard's idea because it was kind of reviving some of the Anglican ideas that came from England where these pilgrims came from and they kind of pushed away with their Congregationalist polity. They're kind of more halfway Presbyterian type of understanding of the ordinances and church membership. But Stoddard was trying to introduce an evangelical flavor, but kind of bringing back the somewhat sacramentalism of the Anglican church. So. Greatly expand church membership, let everyone come into the church and be considered a member. And he thought that taking the sacraments or rather the ordinances of baptism in the Lord's Supper, he thought that they could evangelize people. So if we don't know if someone's regenerate, just preach on what baptism is about and let them get baptized and let them partake of the Lord's supper. And Hey, this represents the blood of Jesus Christ and stuff. So maybe by letting people partake of the Lord's supper, even if you're not saying you should be regenerate to partake, it's like maybe by means of practicing these ordinances while hearing him preach, these ordinances will evangelize people and then they will become saved and <laughs> yeah he was a good guy he was pious he was an evangelistic and he saw several revivals under his preaching or as he called them harvests in 1679 1683 and 1696 but this expanded church membership would ultimately lead to large churches with most people there not really being able to explain the gospel, like they're just attending church because it's part of culture. My name is Andy Olson, and I want to tell you about EchoZoi Radio. EchoZoey Radio is a podcast outreach of EchoZoi Ministries. Every month, I find a knowledgeable guest to talk about an important and interesting topic that affects the church today. We carefully balance the discussions of positive, God glorifying doctrines of Orthodox Christianity from a mostly reformed point of view with exposes of heresy, false teaching, and poor practice that goes on throughout the church today. You can find us at echozoe.com. That's E C H O Z O E.com. In some ways, I've been aware of what was called the Auburn Avenue controversy. So, in 2002, there was a conference um, held at the Auburn Avenue Presbyterian Church where certain people, Doug Wilson, Steve Schlissel, among others, presented this concept of the objectivity of the covenant, where in normal Presbyterian covenant theology, someone was a covenant member if they were regenerate, or their children were covenant members by baptism, but then you would evangelize your children and make a profession of faith, kind of like the Congregationalist churches in the colonies. That's the way Orthodox Presbyterians would think. But the Federal Vision controversy started in 2002, where they were trying to say that the act of baptism itself sacramentally makes someone objectively part of the covenant. And so you consider them saved by means of baptism And essentially, you evangelize by just raising people up in the covenant, and they practice church membership kind of sacramentally and stuff. And so there was kind of a blurring of the idea of justification by faith among certain Presbyterian churches that embrace this federal vision viewpoint, and... Solomon Stoddard, his policies seem to remind me of the federal vision controversy within the last two decades.
1: So I think it's kind of interesting how he used, like you said, the Lord's Supper and different things to evangelize and bring people into the church because, I mean, 1 Corinthians is pretty clear about how (laughs) you need to only partake of the Lord's Supper if there is nothing. hindering your spirit to be able to partake of that.
0: So examine yourself and partake unworthily. So you have to recognize what you're doing. It's not flippantly, you don't partake unless you understand what this is, (laughs) what it represents, you know, not discerning the Lord's blood as the apostle Paul says. And so the Lord's supper cannot be a way to regenerate someone by proxy. (laughs)
1: And I just wonder, too, because so first Corinthians 11 is where it's talking about how to observe the Lord's Supper. And in verse 30, it says, for this cause, many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. So people that take it unworthily (laughs) then for that cause, they're weak and sickly among you and many sleep okay, if anyone and everyone can just come in and partake in the Lord's Supper, they don't even know what it means, mm. then they're just kind of not really having that change, not having that revival in their hearts. They're not mm. understanding like what that represents, like you said, babe. And it's like, okay, just partaking that, just doing things, the works like that, is not a personal relationship or Mm. having that regeneration of the Holy Spirit inside of you. So then it's, Like people are just dead Like they're asleep They're not doing anything (laughs) There's no growth
0: And we could see how that resulted In a weak, sickly, and dead church Now I think the Apostle Paul is talking about how Because God is jealous For the true meaning And observance of the Lord's Supper Like if you're doing this It's because you are saved And you're reflecting on What Jesus did How this represents it But if you're making it flippant Such as letting the world partake of it you know if they don't understand it that's not partaking worthily and according to apostle paul god could possibly take someone's health maybe some people ended up dying earlier because god would judge them for partaking unworthily that way and so yes it is important to recognize who the ordinances are for in the church in that way and not to be flippant about it It might seem like we're just some ways splitting hairs and getting into nuances like, wait, aren't we supposed to be talking about the Great Awakening and all all the cool revival fire preaching? Like, well, this is the nuance of why this preaching actually happened. This is the background to it. And so it also helps to understand, like, why were there messages about what they were? Why was the content like it was because they're preached to people who had a cultural, nominal Christianity. But many of these people weren't regenerate, and they needed to hear the truth out of the darkness. So now we move on from Solomon Stoddard to Jonathan Edwards. Now, Jonathan Edwards was the grandson of Solomon Stoddard. And Solomon Stoddard, as I said, Great guy, revival preacher, proto-Great Awakening revival preacher, Jonathan Edwards did learn the fervor and the concept of revival preaching from Solomon Stoddard. So, Solomon Stoddard had his good influence, but he also had his bad influence with the church polity. So, Jonathan Edwards would eventually find himself at odds with this teaching about church membership. So, Jonathan Edwards was basically America's greatest theologian philosopher. Jonathan Edwards was well-studied in both theology and basically philosophy. He read John Locke and stuff, and he would kind of understand the Bible and philosophize, defend the theology with a philosophical reasoning. He was also interested in science and reason, so he kind of took some of the good elements from the Enlightenment to reinforce the truth of Christianity. Edwards was a graduate of Yale, and he would eventually, like right at the end of his life, become the president of Princeton University. There's a lot to like about Jonathan Edwards, but one thing I like about him compared to some of the other revival preachers, is that he actually had a good married life. (laughs) (laughs) So his wife, Sarah Pierpont, was a joyful woman who actually was well-studied in the Bible, And she had a deep personal relationship with Jesus that Edwards really noticed. And I think Sarah, who had become his wife because he noticed just how much she loved Jesus, would probably have a very important influence on helping Edwards become the revival preacher that he was. So, they had 11 children together. (laughs) So, they were a big family there and... Sarah was intimately involved and enthusiastic in raising their children in the faith, and they also were a hospitable family who invited other traveling preachers during the revival times to stay at their house. Jonathan and Sarah Edwards' marriage was known by observers to be sweet and deep, and they prayed together frequently pretty much every day. Jonathan Edwards is known mostly for a particular sermon that we'll get to, but his influential revival preaching started in 1731 with the message that He didn't have a title for it at the time, but then he eventually titled it later, God Glorified in the Work of Redemption – by the greatness of man's dependence upon him in the whole of it. (laughs) That's (laughs) quite the title, but Jonathan Edwards was a staunch defender of the sovereignty of God and how God redeems people from themselves. So basically God gets the sole credit in salvation. And so we are utterly dependent on God saving us, regenerating our hearts from our sinful condition. So now we get to 1727, Edwards became a minister at the Northampton Church. So Solomon Stoddard, who was the pastor there, pastored for about 60 years. And Stoddard appointed Edwards, his grandson, basically to be a co-pastor there. But two years later, Stoddard finally passed away in 1729 edwards assuming the pulpit as the sole pastor himself for the next two years he wasn't very memorable at the time but he was learning in those two years how to basically practice the revival type preaching that he had learned from his grandfather as Edwards became the pastor of Northampton, this paved the way for him to evaluate eventually how the halfway covenant and liberalizing church membership was actually leading to the dead religion that Stoddard called what he observed as the problem in the churches at the time. Edwards would realize that the halfway covenant was kind of exacerbating that dead religion there. So, by this time that Edwards assumed the pulpit, there are over 600 members, so this would be considered a mega church. Now, in 1733, so a few years later, and after Edwards' sermon, God glorified in the work of redemption. He started preaching some revival-type sermons, and revival was breaking out in Northampton with hundreds of young people being converted and joining the church because there were actually many more members of the church when Edwards started that were considered or in no way known to be regenerate, like many more than the handful that were, could say, yeah, I'm regenerate, I can confess the faith, I'm a fully covenanted member. Edward started preaching revival-type sermons, and one of them was called The Justice of God and the Damnation of Sinners. (laughs) So just kind of think about the titles of these type of sermons here, compare them with what we often recognize or call revivals today, like think of the Toronto revivals or stuff like that, where it's like, take a big drink of the Holy Spirit of God and see people like flailing around like animals giggling and laughing and stuff like that. We have revivals at this time with sermons talking about God condemning sinners and how God's justice is enacted and stuff. So the revivals in the Puritan colonies here were about getting people face to face with the gravity of their sin and their need of salvation It was very much a heart issue and an understanding issue, not just getting people to flock in to see, I want part of this emotional experience and feel the Holy Spirit just tearing me up on the inside and making me crawl around the floor like an animal, you know.
1: And don't you think that that's kind of where we see Christianity in general today, where people mostly think that they're good Mm, and (laughs) like, oh, well, I've never killed anyone or I've never stolen anything like really big. (laughs) And so they think that because they're somewhat good in their eyes, that that's going to be good enough to make it into heaven somehow. And I think that's kind of the dead (laughs) thinking of people in this time where we see the Great Awakening starting to unfold. But also we can see that in our time too, where people just go about their day thinking that they're okay. And then you see John Edwards coming here and he's going to be like, wait a minute, (laughs) I'm going to poke you and prod you a little bit to realize, wait we are not looking at God's standards. God's standards says, no, you are a sinner. And if you don't repent and ask Christ to save you personally, then you are going to end up in hell for eternity. Mm. And we need that kind of (laughs) prodding today. Like so many people just go about their lives on a daily basis thinking that, they're okay and.
0: and then we have seeker sensitive churches or the emergent church and stuff where it's like just come to church and be encouraged and have it like a glorified social club and we want to make you feel at home you know like but that's not the recipe for a revival of the heart and so if people just feel comfortable like God just loves me the way I am in the sense of he doesn't need me to change. You know, he just gets the warm fuzzies about the fact that I exist as I am. And, <laughs> and yeah, we're going to see that that's not good enough. And that was a problem at this time.
1: <laughs> so Revelation warns us about this kind of hmm. place of religion. Revelation 3.16 it calls them lukewarm. And so it says, so then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Mm. So when we're just going about our life thinking that we're okay, we don't have that personal relationship with Christ, then we're just lukewarm.
0: Mm. God's going to spew (laughs) us out. (laughs) So basically tasteless and useless because hot and cold has a use. You can't shower with or drink lukewarm water, you know. So, yeah, I would say that definitely the people at this time were lukewarm because they didn't take church seriously. Church didn't take them seriously and thinking that they're good just because they're going about their life and seeking wealth. There's a lot of problems with drinking at this time, too, and drunkenness. So, yes like we see today (laughs) and a lot of churches with lukewarm people. And so, yeah, we can see that we're in need of a revival, just like the 18th century colonies were in need of a revival.
1: Looking for strategies that will help you engage in meaningful conversations with members of the Mormon Church? Well, if so, take a look at Sharing the Good News with Mormons, a new book produced by Harvest House Publishers and edited by Mormonism Research Ministries' Eric Johnson and Sean McDowell. Sharing the Good News with Mormons includes 24 helpful essays from two dozen Christian apologists, scholars, and pastors. Pick up your copy at the Utah Lighthouse Bookstore or order directly from mrm.org.
0: Now, with Edward's early revival efforts, perhaps he shocked people a little too much (laughs) in a sense, because especially young people there. There were hundreds of young people who were converted, but then somehow other people didn't or at least maybe it was their problem, (laughs) but they didn't figure out what the hope was. So some of them just ended up committing suicide because they just thought, okay, I'm doomed, I'm hopeless, you know, what can I do now? And because of that, there were cries of the Northampton Church is fanatic, and this kind of ended the early revivals short but as the revivals ended news of the revivals started to spread across the atlantic across the pond as the brits would say to england and scotland and so even someone like george whitfield who was another great awakening preacher would end up learning about jonathan edwards as he was doing his own revivals and we'll learn about george whitfield in the next episode So, Whitfield, eventually he would take several tours of the colonies, and in 1939, Whitfield, who was a former Anglican minister, traveled to the colonies to preach, and he went to Georgia, and he would preach going north, and eventually he met up with Edwards— And as we'll hear in more detail next episode, Whitfield was one of these traveling preachers who a lot of the churches were closed to him because they considered his preaching fanatic and that it wasn't proper for church or proper for a minister. And so he did not get to stand in a lot of pulpits, but Edwards granted him the pulpit in their church at Northampton and as he had Whitfield as a guest preacher there. As Whitfield was good at doing, he could make pretty much the entire congregation, the entire audience, just weep uncontrollably because of the fervor and the detail. And, you know, he was good at acting, too. So he brought a lot of emotion into his sermon. So Edwards himself, along with the congregation, just boohooed the entire sermon. <laughs> But that also helped Edwards feel reinvigorated toward revival after the problems of the previous revival. So, two years later, in 1741, Edwards was traveling and invited to Connecticut to a church in Enfield there. And this is where Edwards preached his famous and also it's say infamous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You might have heard of that. And perhaps when you think of Edwards, you're thinking this was his sermon. This was the type of thing he preached. So maybe your ideas of Edwards preaching is formed around this sermon and You know, I have to say, most of his sermons were not like this. (laughs) And I've read some people have said that perhaps he wasn't even supposed to be the preacher. The preacher is going to be there to guest speak while Edwards was visiting. Couldn't make it, so they allowed Edwards to preach or something. Who knows, but... In any case, Edward preached this sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, he had preached it at his home church in Northampton as part of revivals you know, a few years before, and he got responses, but he got the greatest <laughs> response at this church in Enfield. If you haven't read the sermon, I highly recommend it, but just be forewarned. It leaves no stone unturned. It will stir you to think deeply about it. So the springboard verse in the sermon was Deuteronomy thirty-two thirty-five. So he read the whole verse, but the particular statement he emphasized was, "...their foot shall slip in due time." And so the idea here was the Israelites, they were not regarding that the judgment of God was imminent. God could judge them at any time and they were kind of getting cocky about their ways. But, you know, it's like, okay, all it takes is their foot to slip and they would face the judgment of God. And so the sermon Edwards masterfully uses a lot of vivid imagery, and he has a flow of argumentation from the premise that just like the Israelites, sinners in the church, those who were unregenerate, those who were not saved, they would have to realize that not only would they be on their way to hell if they were not saved, if they did not trust in Jesus Christ, if they didn't have a regenerate heart for the truth there but that that judgment was imminent and the only thing that was holding them back from God's judgment was just the mere pleasure of God so that's what he would emphasize through imagery after imagery the idea of being like one would hold a spider or some loathsome insect over the pit you know he described like the glowing flames are reaching up the pit is opening up its mouth and all that it takes you're pretty much right there to slip and fall and the only thing holding you back is just God's current mercy just not letting you go but that you actually do deserve it this isn't God being cruel to you this is your sentence you're already guilty there's nothing that would logically keep God from just dropping you into hell this very moment it's just the mere pleasure of God so as he was preaching this, first people are wincing, groaning. You could hear some people asking, what shall I do to be saved? So many were trembling. People were just shaking. There are people who were like grasping the pews and white knuckling the pews. Other people were like holding on to each other because they were just terrified that they're going to fall into hell. There's some people like pretty much lifeless on the floor because they're like feeling like they're going to slip and fall. Some people grabbing on a post feel like, oh, I'm going to fall. The floor is going to open right up and I'm going to fall. Please help me and... Now, Edwards did not shout this message. <laughs> he wasn't known for shouting or expressing anger in his voice or his intonation. When he preached, some would describe it as monotone. I mean, I think he was kind of soft-spoken. He preached like he was a university professor because he did teach at the university. And so he was, had a calm deliberate teaching voice <laughs> and he had eye trouble. So most of the time he has his face in the sermon as he's teaching it out. But God really used the very detailed, clear message of this to just rock bring people to their knees here and he could not even finish the sermon because of the desperation of the people there not to go to hell and so he had to cut the sermon short and you know at one point i think i heard that you know he basically looked up and he saw the reactions of the people there and you know tears were running down his face and then he told the ministers there at the church, you know, to go kind of like we do at counseling at church today, the ministers would go out to the people there and counsel them. And they counseled these people and they got them to feel calm. So people got saved. People criticize Edwards for this sermon and say, oh, this is just scare tactics. But the people got saved and they were calmed. (laughs) You know, just think of hearing this imagery about slipping into hell. But after they were counseled, they were at peace. So they knew they were saved. This was real revival, the real work of the Holy Spirit to lead people to a saving understanding of Jesus Christ, and then they became fervent disciples of Jesus. Edwards definitely was one of the greatest Great Awakening revivalist preachers there, but that doesn't mean that everyone loved him from that point onward, because as we said, the halfway covenant stoddardism in church polity would actually come back to bite him later on. So, in 1744, Edwards started to voice his disagreement with the halfway covenant because, yes, he was dealing with the dead religion, but he was kind of coming to grips with the fact that the halfway covenant and Stoddard's policy was part of the problem, part of the cause for the need for the revival that he was preaching So he preached for four more years at this point at Northampton, but a lot of the elders of the church were kind of like, wait a minute, you can't oppose what our former pastor taught here. We don't agree with you about your opposition to the halfway covenant. So, in what happened in 1748, there was a person who, very uniquely in this case at this time, expressed his desire to be a fully covenanted member. So, go through the process of the elders examining them and having them confess the faith and kind of pass Edward's test of, let's see, is this person truly regenerate? Can we put him on officially on the rolls of a fully covenanted member? But the church didn't really like this, and they ended up voting Edwards out of his position as pastor there. So, in the 1750s, Edwards then moved to Virginia and started preaching to Native Americans. And he noticed and he argued that the colonialists were exploiting Native Americans for their own gain. So, there's another plus on the revival preachers and their understanding of liberty. We then get to the end of Edward's life, so February of 1758. He became president of Princeton University, but not for very long. In fact, only for a few weeks, because one week after he started as president there, he got a smallpox vaccine, but then less than a month after that, he ended up dying in the month of March from complications from the smallpox vaccine. So Edward's life was kind of cut short there. He died at age fifty four. A short life lived, but one who changed the course of American history. And as we'll see, through these great awakening revival preachers, it's the salvation that they preached that ultimately laid the groundwork for the American Revolution. So, you think about it, if we didn't have the great awakening We possibly would not have had the American Revolution, the groundwork for the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, all that kind of stuff. You can say that Christian revival was responsible for understanding the ultimate expression of liberty in all of history. And so we hope that this look at the life of Jonathan Edwards and his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, help you to understand part of the Great Awakening here, the need for revival, and how we can even see that we have some similar circumstances even today in our need for revival. And we hope that you stay tuned for the next episode as we will get into George Whitefield. And God bless.